test on, so sounds like we're good. Hey, the uh, United States Supreme Court was in the news lately in ways they would rather not be. They were being accused, basically, this is Mike's nutshell, uh, liberal politicians were condemning and accusing conservative justices of a lack of adequate morality or ethics in their role as justices. Is that the pot calling the judicial robes black? I, I, I don't know how that works. Yeah. Uh, to be sure, ethics, morality, a sense that everything's being done above board in the court system is something we want, otherwise our confidence in it is quite low. And guys, we live in a time certainly in which anyone would have a credible reason to doubt how often or to what degree justice could be had in, in almost any uh, range of our judicial system. And not just that. Are just dealings in the halls of Congress or the White House or the court something we can count on? Uh, you know, oftentimes we talk about... Um, a person we don't want to be characterized by one fault or even one asset, but what are we characterized by broadly? So if we say uh, the stock market uh, goes up and down, we say yes, but generally it goes more up than down. What are we characterized by? We've certainly entered a stage in the country's uh, life where what are we characterized by along the judicial system is certainly called into question. What happens to a place where justice is no longer the norm? can't count on it, what happens. What is life like when justice can be bought and sold like a commodity to the highest bidder? That, by definition, is no justice at all. What should our expectation be when the wicked are not only ruling from the bench, but rewarding the wicked who come before them? So this is the theme of Psalm 82. That's where we're going to be this morning. The theme is justice, or really it's lack, and, and the theme in and this one is its lack. Alan Ross summarizes Psalm 82 this way, envisioning that God judges in the midst of the judges, the psalmist records his indictment and condemnation of all judges who have no understanding, which in turn prompts him to call on the God of all the nations to judge the world. Guys, in this uh, series, uh, Like a Tree, Life Like a Tree, taking its theme and title from Psalm 1, the, the goal in coming through Psalms has been to try and get at the diversity that you see within them. So this is kind of to that diversity. You've got a Psalm that's all about what does it look like? What's the responsibility? What's God after in regard to justice as a theme in a nation? Of course, the Psalm is written in Israel, but the themes apply broadly to be sure. If you have your Bible, this is Psalm 82. If you use a pew Bible, this is page 492. The title for this one is a psalm of Asaph. We don't have any of the particulars on this song on what was going on, what's behind the scene when this was written. Don't have that. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment. And believe it or not, we've got to stop right there. One of the big questions on this song is, what court is in play here, and who is being addressed? So we've got two major options here. So let me rephrase this, and I'll just throw in the Hebrew that comes into play that 
is part of trying to define who is God talking to? What's the counsel? Where is it? So verse 1 as it reads, God has taken his place in the divine counsel. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. So Elohim has taken his place in the council of El. In the midst of the Elohim, he judges. So the problem here is that Elohim as the singular God is addressing Elohim, the plural, G, small g, gods. Who are the small gods and what council is this? So there's two primary options. I hope I don't lose anybody on this, okay? The first is this. The council God is in is composed of spiritual beings. These are angels or demons. These are spirits. The council is taking place in heaven. They rule over humanity, and they may do so either directly through themselves. And this is a broad topic. We're not going to try and nuance the, the parameters on where we could go with this, Old and New Testament. But the thought here would be that the spiritual entities overseeing nations, either directly or indirectly through human agents they install, that that's who God's addressing. So in this view, the, the council is in heaven, and it's God speaking to spiritual beings, not humans directly, about the way they're misjudging things on the earth. Now here's the support for this view. I would say too, historically this was not a view. If you go back in history, this was not the understanding, but certainly in the last hundred years or so, this has become much more of an accepted view. If you look at Job 1 and 2, the whole setting that sets up the whole rest of the story of Job is a council setting in heaven in which God is speaking to spiritual entities. Satan is there amongst them. Remember, that's how the whole story is set up. God's having a conversation. Satan, have you seen my man Job? So in Job 1 and 2, you have this this conversation by God in a heavenly setting, and angels, including Satan, are present. Here's another one like that. 1 Kings 22, this is about the prophet Micaiah has been called before King Ahab there in the north of Israel. And basically, Ahab wants everybody to say his plan is great, and Micaiah's called in, and initially says, yeah, your plan is great. And he says, no, don't tell me that. Tell me the truth. And so Micaiah tells him a story. And in the story he says, I saw God in heaven in a council setting. And he said to the spirit beings who were there, how shall we basically bring Ahab to death? What should be our plan to kill Ahab? And so a spirit there says, this is what we'll do. And so that's what happens. So you've got a couple of examples there where we see God in heaven having conversation with spiritual beings, angels and demons. And so that seems to be, that might be the setting here. The Elohim he's addressing are the small g gods, but the plural spiritual entities, the conversation is taking place in heaven. And the term Elohim, it's a plural, it's used of God, it's used like just under 3,000 times in the Old Testament, very, very common. Uh, it's a title and or a name. It's used of God, angels, and human rulers. So that's the first option. So we're seeing a heavenly setting, and God's talking to spiritual beings, and he's holding them accountable. Here's the second option. This was the historic norm. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> my throat's worse than normal this morning, so I may hack and cough my way through this. Sorry. <clears throat> the second one is this. 
the psalmist is seeing this more in his mind. And what he's seeing is God not confronting in a direct conversation spiritual entities in the heavenlies, but rather human rulers. That is, there's nothing about the spiritual entities in the heavens. It's about the human rulers in the nation of Israel. So this would be priests, kings, magistrates. The support for this view is, one, the language of God calling judges and leaders in Israel to account for their wicked treatment of the disadvantaged. Guys, this is a theme throughout the whole Old Testament. You see it in spades in the prophets, but you see it brought up in the law as well. So the span of the Old Testament brings up this theme that God is routinely indicting his people because they're not acting justly towards each other. In Israel, those with power and authority to give rulings or to affect the lives of others, they're not doing so justly. This is a super common theme throughout the Old Testament. Your study sheet has some of those references on it. Also, verse 6, some of you may have recognized this. Verse 6 is quoted by Jesus in John 10, 34. And he says this, basically, the scene is where Jesus has defended what he's doing by saying, I and the Father are one. Well, the Jewish leaders say, you're making yourself equal with God. You're calling yourself God. So Jesus quotes verse 6 from this psalm, which we'll get to in a minute. And he says basically this. If God, this is from a lesser to a greater analogy or logic. If God called them God, small g, to whom the word of God came, we assume that's Israel through Moses. If God called them gods, how could it be wrong for me to call myself the Son of God? Matter of fact, that's language also in this same psalm. So Jesus says, he seems to be implying directly that the words God was speaking in Psalm 82 were to human agents, the ones that had received God's word. So that's the support for it. Uh, here's Mike's judgment. I, I don't think I'm splitting hairs. I lean towards the second option, not the first. But whether spiritual rulers are meant to be included in the language or not, whether you say they are or they aren't, it's ultimately human rulers who are being called to repent of injustice and fulfill their God-ordained role of judging with equity. If God simply tells us in this song, remember these guys, this is being sung in worship at the tabernacle and later at the temple. And I don't think it's meant to, ser uh, to simply say, God's calling heavenly agents that you, have no, you, you don't see, you don't hear, you don't know, and you don't know what they're doing, that you're singing about God calling them to account, and you have no idea what's going on. The other thing is this, the thought that God expects wicked spirits to rule over men with justice seems incongruous with their very nature of opposing God. For instance, in Daniel 10, in Daniel 10, Daniel has prayed and God has answered his prayer, but it took three weeks for the angelic messenger to get from God in heaven to Daniel. And when he finally gets there, he says to Daniel, as soon as you started to fast and pray, I was sent. But I've been opposed by the rulers, the demonic rulers, over Babylon. They've held me up. Some Whatever this looks like in the hev heavenly realm. I've been opposed by these rulers. Uh, one of the things we know, there's a verse in Genesis 10. 
and there's uh, the implication in part of Daniel and 1 John is that we still know though Jesus has died for sins and has risen as victor over sin, Satan, and death, we still know that this world lies, 1 John says, under the power of the evil one. We still know that when a person is convicted of sin and trusts Christ, Colossians 1 says, they're moved from the kingdom of darkness, that's, that's over the earth, to the kingdom of God's Son. So you and I still live in a paradigm where the enemy is actively ruling over the nations of the world. This is a thing. And this was a thing in Daniel's day. And you see it in Daniel 10 especially. So we know that there's demonic agency at work in the nations. That was true then. It's true today. In fact, sometimes if you look at... uh, If you wonder why someone believes something that seems outrageous to you, some religious claim, some philosophy, whatever, and you say, my goodness, how in the world do you believe that? Paul says in, my memory's going to fail me here, it's maybe 1 Timothy 4, he says there are such things as doctrines of demons. There are teachings of demons, and, and it goes from the spiritual realm to people who start repeating those things. So there's absolutely demonic influence in the world today. You don't have to be possessed. You don't have to be a puppet on a string because demons are making you do something to be affected by the fact that there are demonic agencies in the world that still affect us today just as they were then. But the question in Psalm 82 is, who's being called to account? What do you do with that? Who's being called to account? What do you do with that? So even if we say... We think God really is in this song speaking to spiritual entities in the heavenlies. At the end of the day, you still have to say, so what? So what repercussion does that have for me? And that's where we want to take it. So we want to say, what's God saying to Israel in their time, those who have responsibility to bring about justice, what's he indicting them for? What is he calling them to? And then what's the application for us? What does that look like for us? For me, especially in this song, it has to do with expectation. Expectation is a big thing, huge thing. Okay, so whatever the setting, we're going to end up saying what's the repercussions for human rulers who have authority to rule and give guidance to people's lives. So, sorry, long way in at verse 1. Go to verses 2 through 4. So this is what they're up to. How long will you judge unjustly and you know in scripture when it says how long it means it's been going on for a while for a long while how long will you judge unjustly that means evil morally perverse warped twisted how long will your judgment be twisted and perverse how long will you show partiality to the wicked and the wicked here is the one deserving punishment no question the wicked coming before the bar of justice is the one that deserves punishment say law there means pause and think about it okay is this what's going on verse three instead give justice to the weak and the fatherless maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute rescue the weak and the needy deliver them from the hand of the wicked So look at God's complaints. Giving preference to the wicked almost certainly involves bribery. Justice was to be had for the right price. So 
justice that can be bought is no justice at all. And what you, you have here are the wicked coming before the bar of justice. They deserve punishment, but they're getting reward because in one fashion or another, they've bribed the ruler or the judge. They're paying to get what they want. If you look at verses 3 and 4, they failed to give justice to the disadvantaged. If someone is being preferred at the bar of justice, someone else is losing out. If you look at this, and this really becomes the hallmark, and you can tell, I uh, forget whose quote it is, uh, there's a quote that says, the final test of a gentleman is this, how he treats those who, have, who can be of no use to him. That's the true test for me. Well, on justice, the true test is, do those without any influence, no social standing, no money, do those who can't affect things one way or another, do they get justice? If they don't get justice, justice is not to be had. The weak and the fatherless, the afflicted and the destitute, the weak and the needy, people without material resources, they lack social standing, they could not get justice. So what should they get from judges? God says here, justice, maintenance of their rights, rescue from the wicked. So the courts, or whoever it is that has the ability to influence outcomes, should be the place where the weak can get justice. You know, the popular image of justice, I suppose this is still common on courthouses, is Lady Justice, called Blind Justice, because she stands there and she's blindfolded, which means she, sees, she does not see any personage. But she's got the scales in her hand, so all that matter are the facts. All that matters is the truth as far as her judgment goes. Justice is meant to be blind in that sense. All that we're concerned with are the facts. It's all that counts. Listen to this from Leviticus 19. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor. Guys, here's the thing. The poor don't get credit for being poor at the bar of justice. We don't assume that the poor are right in their lawsuit because they're poor. This is clear in Leviticus. Don't be partial to the poor and don't defer to the great. We're not partial to the poor because they're poor. We don't defer to the great because of their greatness. But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. It only has to do with the truth. It has nothing to do with the standing of the people bringing their issue. This psalm is describing a time when judges were deferring to the great, those who were among the wealthy, the great, and the well-placed, those who lacked wealth and standing could not get justice in the justice system. Uh, listen to these uh, verses. This uh, Psalm 94, verses 3 through 6. O oh Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They're getting things their own way. They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. This is in Israel. It shouldn't be, but that's what was going on. Psalm 94 describes. Listen to this from Isaiah 1. Your princes, God speaking to the nation, are rebels and companions of thieves. Princes were rulers in Israel. 
Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. What can I get because of my position? They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them because it doesn't pay. They don't get anything from it. Isaiah 5, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked, so this is the plant God put down, and it's a good vine. Everything's fine with what God did. Uh, he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. This would be violence and murder. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry, help. I, it's not righteousness I'm getting, I'm being oppressed. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Verse 23, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. That was what was going on in their day. Now guys, in our day, and I bring this up because I do want us to make it a present tense, what does this look like for us? A New Jersey senator, senior senator Menendez, has been indicted for the second time on bribery charges. There's a half million dollars almost cash in his house. That's a good savings account in your little safe at home, right? Half a million dollars. And gold bars. And the, the, the assertion by the federal government is that for this money, Menendez made sure that an Egyptian had exclusive rights in his business dealings. He had no competition. And also that a certain individual got the judgeship in a particular seat. That's the, that's the accusation of the federal government. The president, President Biden, is right now being accused in impeachment hearings of gross and chronic levels of bribery. It seems that so far at this point, at least in what I've read and seen, it seems that there's been little direct correlation to his account, but it's certainly everyone in his extended family has lots and lots of money from lots and lots of different sources. It smells fishy, to say the least. If those without power and influence can't count on receiving justice at the bar of justice, it means that justice is not available. Can you blame anyone in our country today for thinking that justice is not to be had, either legislatively or in the court systems, at least as a norm? By the way, I don't want to jade anyone here about working for justice, looking for justice, pursuing justice, because we should and we do. But it's the expectation that I would want to address. It's that we should do all the good we know how to in this arena, but our expectations are what we want to hold more loosely. We want to pursue hard, but our expectations, we understand you can't always get justice. And sometimes justice is simply not the characteristic of what's going on. The lack of justice for the weak and the needy is not limited to ancient Israel. In this day, right now, the weakest among us, being the unborn, have little to no legal status or protection from our justice system in 28 states, Kansas included. No legal standing. If you want to kill a baby, um, you can kill them. They don't have protection from our legal system. What does it say about a legal system that doesn't defend the people who have no other voice, the weakest? The federal government, and by the way, guys, I'm throwing these out here, and this is red meat for some of you, and I don't want, I don't want to devolve to this. I just want to, I want to acknowledge some of what this looks like in our day and time. The federal government is inarguably stealing 
the wealth not only of our own generation, but of generations to come, children born and unborn, with the national debt now at $32 trillion. The excessive levels of taxation and the national debt are forms of theft born to some degree of bribery and favoritism. That's part of the federal deficit. Do you remember when President Obama was going to pay a trillion dollars for shovel-ready jobs, but most of the money went to teachers' unions and political supporters? This is graft. It is bribery. It is the opposite of justice. That's, that's now common cause at the federal level. And it's done with no apologies, by the way. In our culture, it's not necessarily the financially poor or those poor in social capital who may find themselves disenfranchised, but those who don't hold to the authorized majority moral view of the moment. Friends, the court systems are being used as cudgels to punish Christians for having standards of morality in their business practices. So you think of the cases that have gone to the Supreme Court, the Baker, Jack Phillips, in Denver has been to the Supreme Court once, he may end up there again, because the court systems can be used as a cudgel against Christians for having morality in the way they practice their business. And guys, listen, at another level, it doesn't matter if they ultimately win in the Supreme Court, because everyone has been put on notice. We will hammer you in every way we can to make you do what we want, to keep you from saying what we don't want you to say. So this is a thing. This is the court system as it's being used today against Christians. We are an unfavored group. We are out of favor typically now. Unequal treatment under the law is the epitome of injustice that is brought up in Psalm 82. Now, here's the thing. Government and rulers have always been responsible to serve God by way of establishing what is just. If you look at Romans 13, it's one of the key passages on the Christian's relationship with government and rulers and judges, you name it. I'm parsing my reading to say what God expects, not of those under government, but of the government, of the rulers, of the judges. Uh, they have been instituted by God. If they're instituted by God, who do they give account to? They give account to God. Friends, who will all the rulers of this world, just and unjust, stand before one day and give an account? They will stand before God and give an account for what they did. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. What are rulers commissioned by God to do? Be a terror to bad behavior. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. You will receive his approval. Rulers are meant to approve, basically to, to engender the things that are good for individuals and for groups. For he is God's servant for good. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on who? On the wrongdoer. So their authorities from God, they'll give an account to God. Rulers are there to terrorize bad conduct, not good. Rulers are God's servants meant to punish evil, not good. The authority given to rulers, judges, is to do good, to act justly, to give justice. Now guys, verse 5, what happens when justice is not the norm? What happens when justice is not the norm? And this is coming more and more fully into the lives of everyday people in the United States. What happens when justice is no longer the foundation of the culture you and I inhabit? Verse 5, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth 
are shaken. Now that sounds rather extreme, doesn't it? But it is extreme. The judges the psalmist speaks of have turned away from God, truth, and knowledge. They have chosen a kind of moral, ethical, and spiritual darkness. When I turn from the truth to bribes, I'm saying no to reality. I'm turning my back onto truth, life as it really is. And that's what the psalmist is saying. They're now in a kind of moral darkness because they've rejected truth as the standard. The effect is that their world has become unstable. The foundations are shaken. James Montgomery Boyce uh, said this about this verse. A government that does not acknowledge God and try to govern according to the responsibilities for it that God has laid down will inevitably succumb to three perils listed in this verse. First, ignorance. It will not perceive what is happening or what to do about it. Events will outstrip its ability to cope. You know, under the COVID mandates that came about just a couple of years ago, I had serious conversations with many of you. Do these people know what they're doing? That what they're doing is bad, that it's wrong, that it's evil, that it's corrupt. Do they know it and they're doing it anyway because it's their plan or their agenda? Or are they really that disconnected from reality? And I'm still not sure which it was or which it is. Because when truth is no longer our currency, we lose track. We have no metric by which to say this is good or this is bad. He says, second, inept action, when it does act, it will operate in darkness and its programs and policies will be ineffective. And third, the foundations of common life will be shaken. Uh, nations that lack a dependable justice system cannot, they do not thrive. They lack any adequate foundation from which to build. They are shaken in that nothing is stable or dependable enough since justice is lacking. Jay Richards wrote a book several years ago now. It's called Money, Greed, and God. It, it focuses on these very themes. And he points out, does a great job of showing why nations cannot thrive. Guys, if you look at a map, uh, you look at an image of, uh, well, uh, the island in the Mediterranean, excuse me, in the Caribbean, that we say is Haiti and the Dominican Republic. If you look, you'll see the Dominican Republic side is really green, and you'll see the Haiti side is really brown. And if you look at the Dominican Republic side, it's the same island, guys. It's just got an artificial division, kind of through the middle. In the Dominican Republic, it is certainly not a first world country, but it's fairly stable. And people have jobs and businesses and churches there are flourishing, as we know. And life goes on. If you go to Haiti, what's going on? You know, we, we're not going to Haiti because it's not safe to go to Haiti. What's the difference between the two? There's a foundation in the Dominican Republic and there's none in Haiti. The lack of a justice system, the lack of a cultural ethos buy-in to a way of seeing life simply is not there. There's not a common denominator adequate as a foundation for their culture to thrive. It's not there. And it hasn't been historically. It's not the island. And it's not that the people in Haiti are somehow different from the people across the line in the DR. It's the undergirding that's lacking on that side of the island. Why buy land if someone can legally steal it from you? Why invest in a factory if there's not a police force with the power to enforce laws that allow your fa factory to operate unmolested? 
Why create new technologies that could benefit multitudes when your creation can be stolen with impunity? Why live in a city if the city streets aren't safe because criminals aren't prosecuted because justice languishes in the streets? Now, I don't have to look hard for this. San Francisco is losing their retail business downtown. And they're losing it because criminals are now the privileged class in San Francisco. You don't have to make this up. The stores can't afford to operate there. The grab-and-go thefts, the break-ins through the front windows and people coming in, this has become the norm and they're not prosecuted. So retailers know there's nothing that's going to allow us to think we can operate a normal business here. We have no idea when someone's going to come in, rob from us, and there's no repercussion. Criminals are the preferred class. Justice isn't just a nice word. It's the means by which God provides for the most people to thrive. And without it, cultures cannot thrive. Without justice, there's moral darkness. There's a lack of any societal and interpersonal foundation adequate for people, again, as a characteristic, as a norm, to thrive. And let me say this quickly. The lack of justice doesn't begin or end strictly in the judicial system. I wonder if the religious can be as deficient in living unjustly as atheists and agnostics. Do you think the religious could do this too? Hmm, I wonder. This is from Amos 5. Amos would be about the same time as the prophet Isaiah and Micah. This is God speaking to his covenant people. <laughs> his, his very religious covenant people. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I hate when you come to church on Sunday morning sort of what he's saying. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look on them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. Your songs to me right now, he says, they're noise. Uh, take away the melody of your harps. I will not listen. All the religious... All the religious observance, he says, I want nothing to do with it. So, but what's he centering on? This is one of those great, great verses. He says, but let justice roll down like a fountain and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What's God want? He wanted justice among his covenant people. He said, you guys practicing these religious hoops, I have zero interest because you're not living in a way that honors me. You're not loving me and you're not loving your neighbor. God says, I want justice and I want righteousness and you can keep the rest if that's not what you're bringing. By the way, who inspired the Roman crucifixion of Jesus? The religious rulers of Israel held an illegal trial. They used bribed witnesses in order to condemn the only truly innocent person who's ever walked the earth to maintain their power and lifestyles. Those were religious people. They went to church on Sunday. They went to synagogue on Sabbath. We don't say because someone's religious that we assume that they're committed to godliness, to justice, to truth, to righteousness. In fact, it's sometimes it's the worst that we don't go in assuming. I love it when someone visits this church and they say, we read your statement of belief online. Thank you. You're being careful. That's good. I love that. You're, you're, what do you hold? You know, what do you believe? What are you tethered to? We say we're tethered to scripture. We say the Holy Spirit's here because Jesus is risen 
And God has given us a standard. He's given us directions. That's the deal. That's what we hold on to. What is it that's shaping any religious group? That's a fair question. Because religion in and of itself, guys, is meaningless. It's worthless. Micah 6.8 is a great memory verse. Probably many of you have this. What does the Lord require of us? But to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. What's God want? He wants justice. He wants us to know what's true and to live according to the truth. Those who are merely religious can be as unjust as the irreligious. So the fact that someone goes to church is meaningless or calls himself a Christian is meaningless. Uh, verse six and seven, he goes on to say, I said, God speaking here, I said, you are gods, you are Elohim, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die. So this is a threat. God's threatening the rulers he's addressing. So if he's speaking, if the Elohim here are angelic beings, angels and or demons, spiritual beings, they can't die the way people die, can they? Because for us, death is what? It's the separation of the body from the soul, soul from the body. Spiritual beings don't have a body to be disconnected from. Now you do have instances, and I believe these are on your study sheet, Matthew 8, 2 Peter 2, and Jude 6. You do have instances of some demons, some fallen spiritual entities being imprisoned while others are not. The demons plead with Jesus, don't torment us before the time. If these are spiritual entities, perhaps this is a threat that, <clears throat> excuse me, they're going to suffer some kind of fall, some kind of imprisonment, some kind of judgment before they otherwise would. I think the more likely is that these are speaking of human rulers, and the inference is this, in spite of your standing and status, in spite of all the wealth you have from your bribes, I'm going to bring about your premature death. You're going to die like any other mere mortal. You're going to die like the powerless people who stood before your bench for justice. There's not going to be anything about you or all the things you've had or all the things you've done that's going to prevent your life from ending prematurely because I'm going to bring about judgment. Spiritual or human, God's appointed rulers faced God's judgment for their miscarriage of justice. And guys, this is the Luke 12, 48, to whom much is given, much is required. What is it God has given? That's what he's going to require. Look at verse eight, final verse. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Who is the psalmist looking to for the final uh, arrival of justice on the earth? He's not now looking to human rulers, is he? And nor is he looking to spiritual entities short of God. He says, oh God, you judge the earth. The nations are yours. This is sort of a bit of an inference to Psalm 2 that God says, I've established my Messiah, my King. I've already figured out who he is. I've established him on this mountain. Faced with the injustice of the day, the psalmist cries out for God himself to rise in order to bring about justice on the earth. Now, understanding that God was going to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham in his conversation with God, he said, shall not the God of all the earth do righteous or righteously? God in your justice. And remember here, the question was, poor Lot and his family, they're down there in that city on the plain. And God, if you just... You just burn them up right now. You're going to burn up the righteous with the wicked. Lord, when you do justice, you must do it right. You have to do it right. And of course, God does. And I bring that up for this reason. The crucifixion of Jesus 
is the absolute, unequivocal proof of God's absolute commitment to justice. To justice. Though God intended to save a people for himself, he would not and could not ignore our sin. So how is a perfectly just God who wants to save sinful humans, how in the world can he bring that about? Merciful and loving as God is, those attributes don't cancel his attribute of righteousness. It's not one or the other. God is always perfect and he's always perfectly everything at the same time. God's love would make children out of rebels, but God's justice required that the sins of these rebels still be punished. Sin has to be punished. Sin brings death, period. It always does. God's just punishment for our sins was poured out on Christ so that God's love could be poured out on us. God's justice is satisfied on the sinner, guys, one way or the other. So as those sinful before God's bar of justice if we plead ourself and our righteousness, if you ask the question of yourself or someone else, if I die, will I go to heaven or not? And I say, well, I tried to be a good life, live a good life and be a good person. We're inviting God's justice on ourselves because we're the measure. That's not a good place to be. That just means God's perfect justice will be carried out on us through eternity. We stand before the bar of God's justice and say, Lord, I plead nothing but the blood of Christ. I have no merit before you. Jesus died for my sins. Jesus is my only hope. The justice due your sin and mine has already been satisfied in Jesus' death on the cross. So the cross really, it always is. It's the absolute epitome and proof that God is perfectly just, nevertheless, and also perfectly loving. And his justice and his love or mercy meet in Jesus' death and resurrection. So God doesn't sacrifice anything in order to save sinners like us. The question for us is, have we fled to Christ as our sin bearer? I'm reading Pilgrim's Progress again. I've uh, not quite made it to the wicket gate. I've just started it again. But it's a great reminder of the burden we bear and that God means to lift that burden from us and it's lifted in our trusting Christ for our salvation. Regarding justice as the pervasive reality on the earth, my call this morning is to temper our expectation, remembering that we live in the same world system that crucified Jesus. Friends, the world today is qualitatively no different than the world that crucified Jesus. And it wasn't just Jews, it was, it was Jews and Gentiles. It was a population there that day that represented everyone on the earth. It wasn't, one group wasn't worse than the other. This is again in Psalm 2, you know, the, the nations have banded together, throw your chains off, it's Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles and Jews, not one or the other. We should work for justice, we should vote for justice, we should live justly in the midst of injustice, but we should do so with our expectations tempered. Get a chance to, Thomas Sowell's essay called The Quest for Cosmic Justice reminds us that in this world as it is, perfect justice is simply unattainable at least if for no other reason, for this reason, that what you and I consider justice may in fact be opposites. If you are for abortion rights and I am for the life of the unborn, you consider my version of justice injustice. Soul's point is simply a practical one that because we don't share the same foundation, you cannot have what people would call perfect justice on the earth as long as people are what they are today. 
There's no real lasting peace on earth until the Prince of Peace reigns. There's no lasting pervasive justice on earth until the Lord of Righteousness rules. And that's happily, Psalm 82 ends on that high note, arise, O God, and judge the earth. And guys, I think that's actually a prayer for the second coming of Jesus. Matthew 6.10 says this. This is a prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That will be the day of justice. Psalm 89.14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. When Jesus sits on his throne, what can you count on? Righteousness and justice. Isaiah 9, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. And last, Isaiah 11, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Think of Lady Justice. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. God make it soon. Amen. You can stand. We're going to read from Matthew 6. Would you read with me, please? Our Father, in hallowed be your name. Kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into 